British author, journalist and activist Owen Jones is currently working on a book called The Politics of Hope. It's an unlikely title in the age of Trump and Brexit, but Jones still thinks there's room for optimism in the UK, the US, Mexico and beyond, as long as people are organised and committed in the struggle against racism and authoritarianism. Given Mexico's own revolutionary tradition, Jones believes its people will continue to stand up for freedom and democracy, despite whatever Donald Trump or even their own government throws at them. My name is Stephen Woodman. And I'm Duncan Tucker. You're listening to Viva Mexico, a podcast from Guadalajara offering news and views in the age of Trump. This week we'll be speaking to Owen Jones about Donald Trump and the situation in Mexico. We'll also be speaking to women's rights activist Sofia Virgen about the conviction and sentencing of her sister's murderers. I first met Owen Jones when he came to the Guadalajara International Book Fair a couple of years ago. We met up again last month to discuss the impact of Donald Trump and the challenges facing Mexico. Owen's currently studying progressive movements around the world, so I asked him what he thought people in Mexico could do when confronted not only by Trump, but also by their own authoritarian government. I mean, partly it's... You know, organising, getting, getting onto the streets, building a broad movement uh, to challenge those policies. Particularly, you know, if you've got a president in Mexico with such low approval ratings, then he's very weak, um, and and that means a strong movement can be built up where people can take to the streets, where they can build a broad coalition of people uh, who are against his policies. So I think, you know, throughout history, many of the rights and freedoms we have were won because people organised um, collectively, you know, join a trade union, get involved in that to defend your rights in the workplace, join a, uh, a single issue group if it's about specific policies which uh, are particularly pernicious, uh, join a progressive political party and become active and go knocking on doors and winning over people who, who need to be convinced. I mean, there's any, all sorts of things people should do, but, you know, we've seen throughout history lots of uh, reactionary governments which... Uh, have fallen in the face of popular pressure which have been defeated by people organising and I think that's a great tradition in Mexico which is a revolutionary society yes. um, and there's a great history of people in Mexico often at great cost standing up for their rights for democracy, for freedom and all the rest of it so I think you know that's a great tradition in Mexico it's a great tradition across the world and that's the tradition people should be drawing on today whether they're in the United States, Mexico or any other country so, Steve, we, we were both in Mexico City last summer when Donald Trump came for his uh, surprise visit. Um, I went down to the Angel de la Independencia that day, and there were a few protesters there, but there were probably more journalists covering the protest than there were actual protesters. Are you surprised that we haven't seen more demonstrations against Trump in Mexico? I think there's generally a bit of an issue in Mexico with protests. We've seen people focusing perhaps on the wrong issues and for example the church has been able to Mm -hmm. bring people together and organise huge groups of protesters to protest things like gay marriage. So I mean it is sometimes a bit disappointing the protest culture in Mexico. People do protest, there's a lot of protests but they lack a perhaps a bit of consistency and getting out in the streets and, re- and repeating the message again and again, I think is sometimes that would be good to see more of that in Mexico. With the Trump visit, that was a great time to protest because that was when Enrique Peña Nieto was, in some way, he was giving a platform for, for Donald Trump in Mexico, which he shouldn't really have been doing at all. Maybe now it's not necessary to be protesting Donald Trump from Mexico. I'm not convinced that it's always a a great idea to be protesting 
in another country mm. the policies you know the US administration maybe that's not the, not the best thing but that for example that was a bit disappointing to see to not see more protest about this, about the visit yeah it's kind of a bit depressing isn't it last year when you had the the church led protest against people's civil rights which drew tens of thousands of people here in Guadalajara and i went the next day there was a protest a pro gay rights protest and there was probably at most a quarter of the amount of people there and it also comes down to the fact that the church is an organised institution so they can bring people out. And it would be good to see these movements backed up by clear, you know, an organisation that has a clear message and a clear aim and, you know, organised that way. There are some organisations like that. But there's there's nothing that compares to the church or churches in Mexico yeah. bringing people out. And it'd be good to see a bit more kind of strength and the kind of grassroots activism. Yeah, I guess civil society is only just beginning to kind of come together and organise itself in that way, and it still hasn't quite as strong as these institutions like the church, which have been mobilising people for centuries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Going back to Owen Jones for a second, I was saying to him that the, the one person in Mexico to have benefited from all the anger at Trump and the Mexican government is the veteran leftist leader Andres Manuel López Obrador, who currently leads the polls ahead of next year's presidential election. López Obrador is actually friends with the British Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn, who came to visit him in Mexico at Christmas. Both men have been the subject of strong criticism in the media. So I asked Owen, who's written a lot about uh, Corbyn's problems with the British press, whether there's anything that López Obrador could learn from his experiences. Well, the press inevitably going to be hostile to any, any left politician or leader. The press is run by a very small group of very uh, rich and reactionary media moguls who define political debate in Mexico, in Britain and, and lots of other countries as well uh, and they'll always go for you if you want to challenge the status quo because those moguls are part of the status quo it's in their interest to protect it um, but then again you know, they're not going to go away they're not going to stop being right wing and aggressive so you've got to have a strategy to deal with them because millions of people get their news from newspapers um, and you know the press and the media yes the media will come out after you but you do need a very clear vision uh, which you endlessly stick to. In, 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 the, in Britain, the Conservatives always have messages and, and visions that they repeat over and over again, long-term economic plan, we're clearing up the Labour's mess, we're, cl- we're balancing the nation's books, that kind of thing. And they're repeated ad infinitum until they become a kind of received wisdom. And, and the left collectively have failed to do that. We haven't had a clear vision that has defined what the left is and what it would do and what sort of society we'd build. So I think that's, you know, for any progressive movement, that's very important. Not just being defensive, not just being defined as well, or, you know, arguing about what you're against, but also having a clear, bold vision about what you're for. So I thought it was interesting what he was saying there about the, the right wing having these kind of strong, repeated messages. We've seen for over 10 years now in Mexico, whenever López Obrador runs for office, you've had the, the right wing National Action Party and sections of the press calling him a, a danger for Mexico. And in the last year since Corbyn became the opposition leader in, in Britain, we've had the Conservative Party leaders and again some of the press calling him a, a danger for Britain. Do you think there's many similarities in the way that the two have been uh, portrayed? Yes, there's definite similarities in the way that they're portrayed and there's this kind of fear-mongering and the just repetition of messages. We're seeing more and more that the power of repetition in politics and just saying the same thing again and again can have a huge power even if there's no truth to what's being said. Yeah. It, it can have a huge effect. Well, it's like this idea that if you repeat a lie enough times, then it becomes the truth, right? Exactly. So um, did you see 
Lopez Obrador wrote an opinion piece in the Washington Post this week criticizing Donald Trump's attacks on Mexico and also criticizing the Mexican president Enrique Peña Nieto's uh, kind of meek response to that. Yes, and I thought that was a very smart strategy from Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador to appear in in a publication like the Washington Post. I thought what was said in the article was he made some interesting points. He used some interesting phrases like imaginary enemies, speaking about the way that Trump has latched onto this idea of Mexico as this other that's bringing crime and bringing danger into into U.S. society. I thought that was that was a kind of great phrase, imaginary enemies. Um, and he also he said a few things about the true solution to Mexico's problems is to improve the living conditions of its people, not to unleash military force against criminal organisations. So he's kind of separating himself from the current strategy and the strategy of the previous government for kind of a military strategy against organised crime in the country. And I think it's kind of obvious, but it's important that he comes out and is very clear that he's he's offering an alternative to that strategy, which has been absolutely disastrous with more than one hundred seventy thousand people dead. So I mean, yeah, I think that's important because they're actually debating a new national security law in the Mexican Congress at the moment, and if it gets passed, it's basically going to normalise the presence of Mexican soldiers on the streets of the country. And I think one of the big problems with the drug law, the drug war, is that we've had uh, the army carrying out police work and uh, that's resulted in a lot of human rights abuses because the army's not trained to carry out police work they're trained to, to fight in wars and that's been one of the the problems which has led to a lot of uh, unnecessary violence in Mexico I think. So did you see that Lopez Obrador has been pretty active on Twitter recently? Yeah I, I think it's been quite funny he, he's he's a big baseball fan and he he released a video the other day of him hitting a home run and leaping over their last uh what do you call it in baseball? The... I'm not a baseball fan. <laughs> anyway, you so see, he, he, he portrayed himself as hitting a home run and, and Peña Neto and he was all failing to catch him, which I thought was kind of cheeky and like it, it might help him to win over some millennial voters to be, to be tweeting memes and that kind of thing. Then there was the the video of that song Despacito, which had a been... Reggaeton, yeah, a reggaeton song. Which had been re-recorded with lyrics about Lopez Obrador and him and his face popping up in the video. I don't know, I thought it was pretty funny. They kind of graphed Lopez Obrador's face onto this singer. Yeah. Uh, I really liked the baseball tweet, but I have to say I wasn't really convinced by the reggaeton video. It didn't seem particularly presidential to me, but maybe I'm being humorous. I just think he's trying to go for something different. Like He's obviously been attacked a lot in the media before, but like I think you can see now with Donald Trump, you don't have to go through the media anymore. Trump won the election not by... I mean, he was criticised by a lot of the American press and he just went straight to the electorate via Twitter. So I think maybe maybe Lopez Obrador is taking a, a leaf out of his populist kind of uh, tactics in, in that sense. Yeah, the comedy wing of the Lopez Obrador's Morena party has been pretty busy of late. I'm yeah. not sure about the reggaeton video. <laughs> How do you a big reggaeton fan, Steve? Is that true? Not quite. So speaking of comedy, uh, the Texas senator and failed presidential candidate Ted Cruz announced last week that he wants to make uh, El Chapo pay for Donald Trump's southern border wall. Um, his plan is to take Chapo's $14 billion to, to fund the wall. And he's announced this legislation, introduced it to Congress. The law is called 
the Ensuring Lawful Collection of Hidden Assets to Provide Order Act. Do you see what he's done there? No. <laughs> so the first letter of each word spells out El Chapo. Okay. It's clever, isn't it? Um, the big problem with this is that Mexico said yesterday that the US hasn't found a single dollar of, of El Chapo's money. So I don't know how they're going to somehow just uh, find his money overnight and bring it to, to pay for the wall. But his money's not just sitting there in a bank account for anyone to find. And, and this $14 billion they're talking about is the calculated amount that they think he's earned over the last 20 years of, of drug trafficking. But a lot of that money is going to have disappeared. A lot of it will have gone to, to paying off police and, and judges and politicians in Mexico, which is probably partly why the Mexican government's not that bothered about actually finding his, his fortune. And how much money is it going to cost to track down all this money? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, just, it's never going to happen, is it? But it's a, it's a nice idea from, from Ted Cruz there. Now, on a more serious note, we want to talk a bit about an important femicide case that goes back a few years, but has only just been a conviction. Steve, can you tell us a bit about what happened? Well, back in 2012... Imelda Verhin, who was a 40-year-old psychologist, was waiting outside of her workplace. She got into the car with her husband, who's collecting her from work. And when they stopped at some traffic lights, two men jumped into the car and forced him to drive to a deserted industrial area. And she was raped and beaten to death. The two assailants escaped and her husband contacted the police When they arrived, they discovered that there were various contradictions in his version of events and he buckled under pressure, confessing that he'd hired the two men to kill her in exchange for the car and about $4,000. So Steve, Imelda was a friend of a friend of yours. Uh, What can you tell us about her as a person? Well, I mean, she had a a very violent death, but she was an extremely peaceful person and and lived an extremely peaceful life. She is a child psychologist who worked for the University of Guadalajara. In her spare time, she led yoga classes, illustrated, and she was, her kind of hobby was rescuing stray dogs. So last month, Imelda's husband and her killers were finally convicted and sentenced to 50 years in jail. This was a pretty big deal because literally 99% of crimes go unpunished in Mexico and Imelda's case was one of the first to draw attention to the growing problem of femicides and misogynistic violence here in the state of Jalisco. I spoke to Imelda's sister about what her and her family have been through since the murder. My sister brought a sense of balance and tranquility to our home and it was very hard to adapt to not having her there. It was a very painful process at first. You didn't know who to trust or what would happen next. My mom's health began to deteriorate, and although she's strong and optimistic, her body began to feel the effects of it all. But all of this helped us to learn about these things that are happening. We've met other families who have helped us to be strong and support other families who are going through the same thing. It would have been more useful if they'd classified the crime as a femicide. But the important thing is that there was a strong sentence. Sometimes they only give killers 25 or 28 years. So this 50-year sentence helps to visualize the consequences of these crimes. It's a constant struggle to remind the authorities, the media and education systems about women's rights because their rights are often violated. There was another femicide case in the news yesterday. 
What really upset us and made us angry was the way the media covered it. The victim was called Margarita Villaseñor, and one of the headlines in one of the biggest newspapers here said, he was obsessed with her, he killed her, and then he took his own life. Another article said she rejected him because she was married, and another said he couldn't control his passion, so he killed her. These articles keep feeding these stereotypes, that men can't control themselves and the victims are also at fault. They have to stop normalizing all of this. So, Duncan, how significant is it that this case ended with convictions? I think it was really important because, for one thing, it draws attention to a major problem in Mexico. Uh, seven women are murdered every single day here. It's also unusual to actually get a conviction in this kind of case. In many cases, the authorities can be very unhelpful when it comes to denouncing crimes against uh, women. Uh, there was one case uh, last year that I was investigating. There were a lot of abductions of uh, young girls here in Guadalajara. And I spoke to one girl, and she was walking down the street, and a guy grabbed her and tried to pull her into his car. She managed to escape, and she rang up the police, and they told her that attempted kidnapping was not a crime, which just seems absurd. Um, in another case, a couple of years ago, I went to this new Centre for Women's Justice, which they opened here in Guadalajara, where they provide uh, legal and medical attention for women that have been victims of crime. And I spoke to one woman there who had been beaten by her partner, and she was told that the injuries weren't severe enough to press charges. And she said to me, what am I supposed to do? Do I wait until he kills me? And I think in a lot of these cases of femicides, it begins with like harsh language maybe then then it turns to beating then it turns to rape and it's a kind of gradual kind of incremental level of abuse that ends in in murder yeah that was certainly the case in the Imelda Verhin case with her husband basically he was stalking her for some time they separated and he would steal money from her and there was her dogs were poisoned as well by him. So there was this kind of, again, incremental levels of, of violence until he ended up killing her. Yeah, pretty horrific case. But uh, I guess the one positive we can take is that there's at least been uh, some, some punishment for those responsible. And that's rare in Mexico. So it is significant that they managed to end up with convictions. And I guess that gives some encouragement to, to other people that have been victims of crime that if... If they do pursue these cases, then there is a, at least a chance now that they will get some, some level of justice. Yeah, we hope so. Yeah. So um, I'd just like to say at this point, thanks to Alejandro Alcalde for helping us to dub that interview. Uh, this issue of machismo and, and violence against women is a big topic, and it's something we'll definitely be exploring more in future episodes. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our pages on YouTube, SoundCloud and iTunes. And if you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Viva Mex Podcast. Viva Mexico! Viva! Viva Mexico!